This is a HeadGum Podcast. Welcome to the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show. I am Jeff Rubin, and today I'm here with Mark Russell, the writer behind the new Flintstones comic from DC Comics. Mark, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Jeff. Uh, Mark, congratulations on the success of the book. I am going to actually embarrass you a little up top uh, and read some of the accolades that you, that your new work <laughs> ha- has, has received. Okay. The AV Club. Uh, said that the Flintstones uh, said of the Flintstones that the combination of exceptional artwork, witty satire, and thoughtful character work has made it one of 2016's most pleasant comic book surprises. Comic Book Review called it the most socially relevant comic of 2016, uh, and I also saw it on Best Comic Books of 2016 list on Vox, on Wired, on Hollywood, Hollywood Reporter, uh, and, and on other sites. I think most people are familiar with the Flintstones generally as a concept, the characters in the cartoon. But for those who uh, are not familiar with your book, uh, how do you describe what you are currently doing with the Flintstones? Well, I would say it's kind of like looking at the foundational problems of civilization uh, by, by basically blaming them on the world's first civilization, which is... It was a bedrock. Was that always in the Flintstones, and you sort of brought it to the forefront, or did you just uh, look at the Flintstones and think that it was an appropriate vessel to kind of make make a point like that? Yeah, kind of the latter. Um, I think there was always sort of this um, this undercurrent of uh, sort of social commentary in the Flintstones, but it wasn't really very developed or overt. And I think that they. Uh, what I, what I want to do is is basically just write about the things that I think about uh, on a regular basis, but just use the Flintstones as the uh, as the catalyst to say what I wanted to say. And I think that's that's ultimately why I took the Flintstones when they offered it to me because I I wasn't really a big fan of the Flintstones. I didn't remember ever really um, enjoying it, but I thought this is like actually a really good sort of premise from which to write about my critique of civilization. When you get offered a job like that, and I want to hear sort of more about how you end up getting offered a job like that, but when you get offered a job like that, do you uh, go back and then revisit the source material? Is that sort of uh, one of the first steps? Yeah, yeah, that's usually what I do. I I try to watch some old uh, episodes. Usually when uh, they they offer me a comic, they send me the entire, like when I got Prez, they sent me the entire body of, Prez work, so I read all, which didn't take me very long because there were only four issues of Prez. Prez was uh, is DC Comics, like an older DC Comics um, thing about a teenage president. That you you also rebooted that. Yeah, yeah, and so that didn't take me very long. The Flintstones obviously have a much larger body of work, so I tried to watch old episodes of the Flintstones, but I frankly just kind of found them unwatchable. Like I don't think I was able to sit through an entire episode of the Flintstones. Did you try different eras of the show? Or? I just tried watching it, but then I, what I found what, what was useful was what, just watching like little YouTube videos of, uh, one I really liked was like, there was this YouTube video of all like the, uh, the inventions on the Flintstones, like all of the little, uh, animal centric inventions. So, and I think that to me, that that's probably the one thing I took from the original series and, and brought into the, the, um, comic was uh, the sort of 
really sort of subversive commentary on, on labor based on the fact that everything they do is built on the misery of these animals who have to like, you know, uh, stand, you know, sit inside a camera or, uh, live underneath the sink eating garbage, uh, to, to make their life possible. So that's interesting. I never thought about it that way in the Flintstones. And you were saying how there's sort of like subtle social commentary in the Flintstones. Maybe it wasn't very overt, possibly because it was like the uh, cartoon in 1955 or whenever it aired. What, what else did you like? Was there anything else like that you picked up on revisiting the show? Um, well, yeah, I think I think the fact that it was made for its time in the in the early to mid 60s, you know, when America was a much more optimistic place and uh, the, the future looked bright. I think that sensibility of like its life and times uh, that it was writing about is really heavily in the the, car- the cartoon, and so I wanted to do the same sort of thing for uh, for the comic book. Even though I think our outlook is a lot more pessimistic, and we feel like maybe we're 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 coming to the end of our great uh, civilizational experiment. Uh, so, for example, the you know the um, the water buffaloes in the cartoon was like this this rotary club, like this men's organization where they're going to do these great philanthropic deeds and mostly just an excuse to get away from their wives on a Friday night. Uh, but for me, what what I mean to me, that's like really anachronistic. That has no relevance to our time whatsoever. So I want I reinvented the water buffaloes as a support group for veterans with PTSD, and uh, which uh, isn't hopefully isn't as pretentious or lame as it sounds, but uh, I want it. But to me, that was much more relevant to what civilizationally we're going through now is that we have a lot of veterans coming back. People who have been went to war and were promised one thing and been delivered another. And, um, and that to me, it's much more, it's a much more realistic picture of American civilization in 2016 than uh, a rotary club where uh, these well-paid middle-class Americans uh, are are coming together to do philanthropic things. As lame as it sounds is an interesting phrase because you must be aware, and you must have encountered this a little as you were working on the project, that there, there was there's some skepticism around rebooting the Flintstones. And virtually oh, yeah. every single one of those uh, reviews that was raving, just really raving about your work, every single one includes a line, where I actually, I actually copied and pasted a few of them. Like the Hollywood Reporter, expectations were low for the Flintstones, but the book has proven itself to be one of the sharpest so- social satires. Uh, wired, pr- proof that 2016 was filled with the unexpected. The year ended with a sharp social satire in the form of a Flintstones book. So did you experience that skepticism when you were working on it? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think uh, just about everybody, when it was announced, there was a cl- you could hear the collective groan go up from the... From- the entire media world was like, why in the world would you reboot the Flintstones? And because the Flintstones, especially by the movies, had just been sort of killed off as a franchise. It really was just nothing but vitamin pills. Uh, when 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 I got offered the comic, and yes, and I and I understand if if I hadn't been the one writing it, I would have been just as skeptical. I would have been the one that, like rolling my eyes. Do we really need a Flintstone? Is there anything the universe needs less than a Flintstones reboot? Uh, do you get like do you get the benefit of low pressure from that, or is it frustrating to um, to have people doubting your work before you even you know do anything? A little both, but I but I find that I really benefit from the uh, the low bar of expectations. I think uh, maybe it's really helped me that everyone expected it to be so bad that that when I did something that was decent, it it really 
was noteworthy and people started talking about it because I think I, I think a lot of what the like you mentioned the press coverage the, what makes this story what makes the Flintstones newsworthy is not just that it it was you know a comic that people enjoyed but the a comic that people expected to be incredibly expected to be horrible I think people were reading it initially out of Schadenfreude expect like like I just got to see how bad this can possibly get, and then when the you know they enjoyed it, they were they were pleasantly surprised. So I think in a way, those sort of low expectations really helped uh, the comic in the long run. I want to take a step back for a sec and figure out how you did end up with this job. And this is like not a comic book podcast. We don't talk to comic book writers a lot. So when I ask you how you ended up with this job, I just mean like, how does any comic book writer ever end up in the position where they are being offered a job? Like, how did you break into the industry, and where did you come from, and that kind of thing? That's a great question. I'm still not sure I know how to answer that. Um, I personally had uh, written a book about the Bible called uh, God is Disappointed in You, uh, which apparently um, had, you know, people had, had been reading at the offices at, at DC. This is a, a graphic novel or a, a book book? No, it's just a book. Uh, it's got illustrations, though, and it was published by Top Shelf, so it was kind of known in the comics world. And um, they were they were looking to do a reboot of Prez for the uh, for the 2016 elections, but they were asking around for writers they that that could do satire or or write something funny. Prez is it's about a teenage president, right? That's the shtick. Yeah, it's a yeah, she's a uh, president. Yeah, first president elected by Twitter. And it's set 20 years of the future, the sort of dystopian future. But yeah, it's basically about a teenager who becomes president. But the se- it was a comic in the 70s, maybe, too? And maybe someone famous yeah. was behind it, too. I mean, you, you must know, right? Yeah. Um, uh, Joe Simon, creator of uh, sure, Captain yeah. America, uh, created him in 1973. And I think in, in the 70s, it was, it was kind of like they, they were trying to do something hip for the kids. But I think at the core of it, it was uh, a bunch of old guys who were in living in terror of the idea that 18 year olds now that they had the vote would just start electing hippies into power and that the whole country would go to hell because you know you'd have um you'd have hippies running the white house uh which unfortunately never happened i think we'd be a better better place if it did uh but yeah my reboot was kind of more about like this is uh this is the um world because the hippies never took over um but but anyway, they were looking for somebody who could write something satiric and funny. And around that time, I was putting uh, my Frankenberry fan fiction on on Facebook. Hold on, is that and, true? That's true. Yeah, yeah. I was just posting little like little paragraphs. I got to hear. But is it so? Just little paragraphs. But do you have like a lore for Frankenberry? Is there like a mythos behind them that is sort of the spine of the story? Like what what is uh, what what else is because, you know, we don't know much about the character from the commercials. Yeah, no, my, my basic approach to Frankenberry and Count Chocula and Boo Berry was that uh, it was sort of like uh, uh, they live in sort of like a Game of Thrones universe where uh, they've been turned into these horrible monsters by General Mills, who's seeking to create like an army of monsters. Uh, but uh, Marie Javins, who was an editor at DC, was reading my Frankenberry fan fiction. At the same time, they are looking for somebody to write this sort of funny satirical reboot of Prez. So she suggested me at the, at the, at the um, staff meeting and showed them a copy of God is disappointing you. 
And so I, completely unaware that there even these conversations were taking place, get a call completely out of the blue asking me if I want to write a comic for DC Comics. And I'd never written a comic book before in my life. So that's that's how I broke in. I don't know if that's really duplicable for anybody listening out there who wants to break into comics. I don't know if my example is the best one to try to, to replicate. Were you into uh, comics? It sounds like if you if you had illustrations for your books, certainly it's um, you, you're aware of the, the the power of it. Anyway, you must have be some a fan of it in some way, right? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I wasn't I wasn't a heavy fan of comics, but yeah, I, I love the comics that I that I like, and I I, mean, I certainly respect the power of of imagery. Um, Shannon Wheeler, uh, who uh, is a cartoonist for the New Yorker, and he does too much coffee, man did the illustrations for God is disappointed in you. And to me, it was kind of like the same thing that cathedrals do. I mean, I would write a condensed version of the Bible, but he would just condense the entire book into one image. So it's like if you were a, a peasant in medieval France in the 15th century, you got bored with whatever the bishop or the priest was saying, you could just look up and see the stained glass window and then tell the story of, you know, David and Goliath in one, one picture. Uh, so that's kind of the way I thought the illustrations worked for, for my book about the Bible. It's like if you weren't sure if you wanted to read the entire story or read the entire book, you could just at least look at the cartoon and get an idea of what happened. And then maybe it would convince you to, to read more. Did Prez and working on Prez teach you any lessons about rebooting and what to hold on to and what you can reinvent that you uh, applied to your work on the Flintstones? Yeah, I mean that was really my uh, my boot camp because I, like I said, I'd never written a comic book before. Can I call before. it your reboot camp? I'm so sorry. Keep going. Yeah, so, yeah, very good. Uh, but yeah, it it taught me I think more than anything how to pace a story because I found like at first I was trying to cram too much into a page. And, and I wasn't really giving the story enough time to breathe. And it's one thing that I learned from Prez was how to like, um, let things sort of mature and how to use the, the expectations of the reader as a storytelling device. And I also learned uh, to be prepared to be canceled at any moment. Because uh, I think I, I wrote Prez as like a 12-issue arc, and I only got through six issues before it got canceled. So... It's it's like I got to show half of a movie that I made, um, which was frustrating. But I've tried to rewrite write Flintstones differently so that each issue is its own sort of encapsulated story, so that it could really be canceled at any point, and you'd still like feel like you've got the story of the Flintstones. Although it looks like. Um, we're going to be able to make it through the full 12 issue run. When you're working on something like the Flintstones, Prez is a character with some history and like anything in DC comics is at least a little precious. But when you're working on something like the Flintstones, is there any pressure to be more precious with the characters? Cause Fred, Flint, Fred Flintstone is a cultural icon, right? Yeah. And, um, they initially, I, I was getting pressure, not from DC, but I would get these messages from, somebody in, in Hanna-Barbera licensing with just weird things like, um, please don't mention any deities or, oh, um, man. You, you blew right through that rule. Yeah, no. <laughs> I mean, and that was I, a I, deal I breaker. The book and yeah, you, 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 uh, you went right through that one. Yeah. Or they wanted me to have Fred say yabba dabba do once an issue. 
uh, which I, I, I don't say yabba dabba do not very often, but it's not not in the way they expected. Right. Well, why did you resist that? Because it is. It does seem. Look, it's like don't mention any deities. It's like all right, come on. You you what? Now that we understand that you were trying to satirize civilization, all these things. Obviously, religion is going to be a piece of that. But not yeah. having Fred Flintstone say yabba dabba do. Why did you resist that? That's Fred Flint's got to say yabba dabba do. Yeah, he? and I and I understand that. Yeah, it's it's part of. And this is something I wanted to do. I wanted to be true to the series and the characters and use the cultural equity that people have in them to say what I wanted to say. So in a way, that that sort of limitation helped me because it's like, okay, if I've got to have Fred say yabba dabba do, how would somebody say yabba dabba do now in a way that that makes sense to to readers now? And within the context of him being a, a, a returning vet with PTSD, I thought, oh, this is like a perfect sort of therapeutic nonsense phrase he could say to himself when he's freaking out or, or when things are getting too stressful. He just releases the tension by saying, yabba dabba do. And it also allowed me to like really use it ironically. So like when you know uh, something's exploding or, or life is horrible, he just kind of like mutters yabba dabba do, like almost ironically. Yeah, you know, the one, I'm trying to think of Yabba Dabba Doos uh, in the series, and the one that's coming to mind um, is one of my favorite parts in the run so far um, is this really, it's a really sad page where um, the the bowling ball, who is a character, because all the appliances are characters, right? And the bowling ball is talking to the vacuum cleaner about how uh, his day-to-day life of being, of being a bowling ball and how sad it is sort of to be an appliance and how Fred, he doesn't understand bowling and Fred takes out his frustration. And in that panel which is being told from the POV of the bowling ball, uh, Fred's yelling, yabba-dabba-doo, and now that I'm like, thinking back to that, it's like not really a joyous thing. Like This animal's kind of talking about how he's being tortured by Fred, and what f- that's, that's where he's yelling it. It's like not a happy occasion at all, really. Yeah, and I think what, you know, what I was trying to convey is just like how, how um, our lives are filled with these sort of casual cruelties we inflict on other people without really even knowing that we're doing it. That I mean, I'm... I'm having this interview on. I'm speaking on an iPhone, which somebody probably really hated making. And you know, the, like in the factory that the, this iPhone was made, there's probably nets outside the windows to keep people from jumping to their deaths. And yet, I'm still having this conversation on the iPhone. So really, I'm no different than Fred rolling the bowling ball, uh, smashing the pins, having the time of his life, while the bowling ball can't figure out why he's being subjected to this torment. There's more Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show, right after this. This week's episode of the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show is brought to you by Blue Apron. If you are like me, uh, you know exactly what to do when food is in front of you and on a plate. But the steps before that uh, can sometimes be a little confusing. Maybe you don't uh, have a lot of experience cooking, you don't know a lot about recipes or or what ingredients to get, or you're a little lost at the grocery store. Uh, If any of that sounds familiar, uh, I think you might want to consider Blue Apron. Their ingredients are sourced sustainably, they are delicious, it's easy, and for less than $10 per person per meal, it arrives at your door fresh. Some upcoming Blue Apron meals include salmon piccata with orzo and broccoli, semicolon, vegetable chili and baked sweet potatoes with crispy tortilla strips, semicolon, and spicy shrimp coconut curry with cabbage and rice. I put those semicolons in there because I want you to know 
where one meal begins and one ends. Uh, because there's a lot going on at Blue Apron. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash Ruben. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So do not wait. That is blueapron.com slash Ruben. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Okay, let's get back to the show. Uh, I guess I'm curious, What was your what if you have any like favorite... Flintstones machines that you really enjoyed, like looking back, and then if you have any favorites that you've created for the new book. Uh, yeah, the one I really liked uh, from the the cartoon was the camera. Uh, to me, that was the most horrifying thing I, I think I'd ever seen. Uh, it, you know, they take a picture and this the camera, which is this tiny little box, opens up, and this bird that's been living this sweaty little camera presumably its entire life pops out and it has like a little tablet and a chisel and it chisels an image really quickly of whatever it's looking at. And that's, it's like a Polaroid. It hands you the image right then. And then it just goes right back into this tiny dark box. It'd be like the equivalent would be like, if you were in solitary confinement, you're in the steel cell, like six foot by six foot. And then all of a sudden guards just open the door and pull you out and make you draw something really quickly and then throw it back in. Uh, so I, I think that was maybe even too dark for me to put in the comic book. So I, I, I haven't really put that character, but my favorite, um, in the, uh, in the comic book is the vacuum cleaner. Cause the vacuum cleaner, um, is kind of a similar thing, but it's a little, a little softer edged. The vacuum cleaner sits in the closet, uh, separated from the other animal appliances, which are in the living room in the kitchen. The vacuum cleaner sits alone in the closet and despite being in the closet all day, has this really sweet disposition and this yearning to be with the other animals. And the bowling ball takes pity on the vacuum cleaner. And at night when the Flintstones are in bed, the bowling ball like lets the vacuum cleaner out of the closet so it can be with the other animals. And they become best friends because of this. Well, one of the limitations they gave me at the very beginning, which again, I, th- I think worked out well for me, was that you know, the humans can talk and the animals can talk, but they can't talk to each other. The animals can only talk to other animals, and the humans can only talk to other humans. So it really kind of created this upstairs-downstairs type effect, where the the master humans have their lives, and the servant animals have their own lives, and they they form this camaraderie based around the fact that they're basically have been enslaved by the humans. In a lot of ways, it became like an allegory for, for, for slavery and racism, and it's residual racism in America. Is that how the cartoon works too? Do the humans not talk to the animals on the cartoon? Yeah, yeah, that's I, I that's why they they impose that on me. Yeah, I, it didn't occur to me either. But yeah, that because initially I had the animals talking to the humans, and I'm like, no, no, that that's not the way it works. They they they, they can't be communicating directly. Uh, in the show, the animals would talk to the audience. The animals would break the fourth yeah. wall and talk to us humans on the other or side. Or they would of, uh, of they the would TV. they would say things about the humans or, you know, commentary about what the humans were doing, but they they wouldn't communicate directly to the humans. The humans never understood what the animals were saying or spoke back to them. You know, you you're the writer, you're not the artist. Um, but did you have an input on the style and the look of all these things too? Sort of, yeah. I mean I had a conversation with Steve Pugh, the artist who's been brilliant on the Flintstones, uh, in my opinion. Uh, beforehand, we just talked about like sort of the temperament and the demeanor, 
And uh, what I try to do uh, when I'm writing the, the panels is to tell the story as visually as possible with as little dialogue as possible and then just get out of Steve's way and let him just dazzle people with like his, uh, his big sweeping panoramas of dinosaurs and people and, uh, and cavemen. And uh, he, he sh- my favorite part of every month is when I get the artwork Steve has done for the issue because I'm absolutely gobsmacked um, every time I get it, like what he's able to come up with. And how would you describe it for those who don't have it in front of them? I mean, people actually should um, give it a Google image search or something, see if they can get a look at some of the, the striking covers that have been done and some of the interior work, um, because it, it re- the art really is great. And it's recognizably Flintstones, but it's definitely not the Flintstones that you're imagining. How is it different? Oh, it's a lot less Hanna-Barbera-y. It's, it's more, it's, I, would, I don't want to say uh, hyper-realistic, but it's, it's a definitely, I think, a lot more... Um, like like a fantasy artwork or something it's it's a lot more um and it looks a lot more somber too it looks a little a lot less two-dimensional than uh the original Hanna-Barbera stuff but one of my favorite things is he his uncanny ability to nail facial expressions uh and and his his also ability to really sort of like flintstoneize uh celebrities when i write them into the script like i had uh i had tony danza uh stony danza in the uh the Flintstones promoting, because uh, like Claude the Destroyer becomes mayor in the Flintstones, wants to launch this ill-advised war on the lizard people, or this sort of weird Davery clan. And he ne- he decides he needs celebrity endorsements, but the biggest name he can get to go along with him is uh, Stony Danza. But you look at the panel. I mean, I I, uh, I, I every time I open that issue now, I I, I go right to the image because it's Tony Danza, like as a caveman. And it's uncanny, and uh, it cracks me up every time I give him a celebrity because he just nails them. Um, again, I just like don't often have the opportunity to talk to many comic book writers. Do you also have input on things like the coloring and the lettering? Is that a piece of it too, or do you just kind of describe what you want and then trust others to enact your vision? Yeah, pretty much the latter. I, I, I try to realize this is a collaborative creative process, and it's as much the creativity of the artist and the right and the colorist as it is mine so I, I tend to let them have their own sort of vision when they're doing it unless there's something i think is like actually going to get in the way in other words one thing i do is like sometimes the letterer will um will create uh, will put the balloons in places that are obscuring background jokes or that are hiding little details in the background that are important so i do exercise veto power when that happens but for the most part, I just let the lettering and the the coloring fall where fall where the the those my fellow artists want it to. And you were talking about working with Hanna Barbera and some of the feedback they were giving you. Do they have any input into like the visuals or any like final say at all? Or did you were you really able to um, do what you wanted? I was really able to do what I wanted. I it feels like I, com- I complained very early on about the the licensing person, uh, whoever it was that was giving me these directives and so um dan didio took care of that and i never heard from that person again and i pretty much just got carte blanche anything that wasn't deemed too obscene or uh that didn't that was likely to get dc sued they let just stay in so i've had to take very very little out that's interesting because i guess thinking about it like there's nothing really vulgar or obscene but it's very it is very heavy and um you know touches on like religion uh, economics, like uh, war, like these 
you know, controversial issues that people have strong feelings about. But and all that seems um, seems okay, I guess, as long as you're talking about it through the lens of the Flintstones. Yeah, no, they don't really have any. Uh, they haven't really had any objections to the subject matter at all. I mean, I could, I could uh, write a comic. I feel like where I was saying that we should take all the landlords out and boil them alive, and they wouldn't have a problem with that as long as I don't say the word shit, or you know, or as long as I don't like uh, use the word Avengers. Right. <laughs> you know. Did you uh, watch the Flintstones as a kid growing up? Yeah, I think I did. I mean, I, I, I think I, like most kids my age, I watched whatever was on that was a cartoon. Definitely. Uh, you know, it didn't really matter if it was good. You won't go back and watch them now. Most of them do not stand the test of time. They're, 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 they're not very good. But we watched them just because they, we knew that they were meant for us because they were cartoons. An interesting thing about the Flintstones that I think a lot of people don't think about anymore is that it wasn't? It was different than the other Hanna Barbera cartoons, yeah. and that it wasn't a Saturday morning cartoon. It was it was the first prime time cartoon, and really the only sort of major one until the Simpsons came around in the '90s or the late '80s. Um, does that make it like different than Scooby Doo and other Hanna Barbera cartoons? Does it, like feel different? Yeah, I think it does. I think it lends itself more to more sort of um, serious everyday subject matter because it really was about. The uh, the marital difficulties created by consumerism and uh, having to constantly produce up to the expectations of you know the um, the boom economy of, of the United States in the 1960s. So it really is, does have this sort of uh, I don't want to say dark, but it does have this sort of serious uh, subject matter underneath. I mean, it's all kind of you know candy coated with happy endings, and you know it all kind of in, ends up okay for Fred and Wilma in the end. But there are these these uh, the, the subjects they deal with. I think are a little more serious and a little more grown up than say like Scooby Doo or or Space Ghost or, or anything like that. Yeah, something I realized going back, just doing my due diligence here, reading the Wikipedia page on the Flintstones, sort of refamiliarizing myself with it. Um, something I'd kind of forgotten about is that Bam Bam is adopted because it's sort of implied that uh, Barney and Betty can't have children, and like they don't go into it's not a you know it's not it's not an episode of Degrassi or anything they don't really go into it but just even alluding to it just a little was pretty bold for a cartoon in 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 the 60s yeah I mean they did it in the most tasteful way they could in an era where you had to show married couples like sleeping in single beds uh you know they like bam bam just showed up mysteriously on their doorstep in a basket you know but but yeah there was this I mean I think for for the time it was it was kind of daring because yeah you naturally sort of have to infer, you know, why they were incapable of having children on their own. And, of course, that's something that uh, I, I sniffed out and immediately had to put in the comic book, the fact that, uh, the, that Barney's shooting blanks. Fred and Barney, I feel like, I know a lot about Fred and Barney. I feel like if you describe a situation to me, I could tell you how Fred and Barney are going to react when they get there. And they're, they're pretty well defined as characters. But Wilma and Betty, I don't know that I know... Uh, as much about what was your take on them going back and kind of thinking about how they should um, how they should exist in this new world? Well, they weren't given very much to do in the original cartoon. They were mostly scolds or you know um, shopaholics. Right. I, I sort of forgot that Wilma's catchphrase was ch- 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 "charge it," which doesn't yeah. doesn't date very well. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, I didn't, I didn't feel very, very good about that. So I wanted to give them interior lives of their own, and 
Betty is still something of a, of a um, materialist consumer, but her charm is in the fact that she's just buying into this sort of new consumer culture that everybody's getting into. Which was like invented yesterday in your world. Yeah, like yeah. They literally just invented consumer culture, right? And and they haven't learned really how to euphemize it yet, so she just blurts out the the stark realities of of this consumer culture, even though she's you know embroiled in it. So she's kind of like a good sort of mouthpiece to to actually do these sort of satirical commentaries on on consumer culture. And Wilma, I, I gave a, a more of an interior life. She becomes like an artist in the comic book, and she. Um, does this art that has this very personal sort of primal connection back to her, her um, origins as a hunter gatherer. You know, I, I, I forgot. I, I, and I only looked after reading your book that, um, Wilma's mother-in-law was kind of one of the few recurring non main characters on the original Simpsons is she had a mother-in-law. And let me tell you, she did not get along with Fred. Did you draw on her at all when you were thinking about Wilma's family? Uh, yeah, uh, Pearl Slaghoople, uh, Wilma's mother uh, does show up in the comic book, uh, and, and in a way, she's uh, she's kind of the one to blame for for Wilma's mess and everything because she's the one in in the comic book. She's the one who basically invents agriculture, which makes civilization possible. Uh, they're all happy hunter gatherers until Wilma's mom invents agriculture, and then they started like settling down, planting crops, and you know, staying in stationary settlements. So all the problems that creates with marriage and the ownership of women and and you know the, the and animals all kind of stems from uh, this one idea Wilma's mom had when she noticed that like uh, you could plant seeds and the crops would come up out of the ground. I feel like in the comic she was basically just a pain in the ass for Fred. Like she was just like she was yeah. showing up and it was just like that was going to make Fred's life miserable for that episode. And in the book, I don't think she's she hasn't no. had that like that sort of uh, overbearing mother, which is like a, I mean just classic mother and like cartoon mother in law. She right? she never has she never meets Fred. She never has any relationship with Fred. But she does have a problem in the relationship with her daughter Wilma, because Wilma had to leave home to avoid you know to to basically leave this sort of agricultural mindset where the women are are like breeding cattle that you sell off to form bonds with other with other farmers. And so Wilma has to flee the village to avoid uh, an arranged marriage, uh, and 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 she blames her mom for this. Uh, what about Pebbles and Bam Bam? They've been depicted a few different ways over the years, as older or younger. I think uh, most popularly thought of as babies, but here they're a little older. They're maybe in like middle schoolish, let's say. Yeah, yeah, that's that's perfect. Yeah, that's correct. How did you uh, come to that decision? Was it just so you could put like? Rock pun band names on Pebbles shirt. No, that's just a that's just a side benefit. Um, yeah, but but yeah, um, that that was one of the things that DC suggested that I make Pebbles and Bam Bam tweens, which really kind of appealed to me because there's not a lot about tweens or middle school kids in popular literature. Uh, usually, I mean, there's a lot of things about little kids and there's a lot of things about teenagers. But it's sort of this forgotten age group, and for me personally, I think it was like probably the most awkward time of my life. That those ages between you know like like ten and thirteen. Is it then a little more liberating too? Because Fred is a character, Barney is a character, with Pebbles. Like who knows how Pebbles acts? Right. Yeah, yeah. I could I could do anything with them that I wanted, uh, and yeah, in, in some ways, Pebbles kind of embodies my. They're all kind of like I think 
parts of my my own psyche and parts of my own brain, and they're all they, they become my mouthpiece at different times. Oh, can we break uh, that down? Do we know like what part of your brain Fred is? What part of your brain Barney is? I think Fred's my conscience, like me at my best moments, where I I I you my best instincts about the world, and uh, Barney's my obliviousness. Uh, Wilma's kind of like my my artistic pretension. And also, I think that I use the people who criticize Wilma's art as like sort of like they they're kind of stand-ins for all the people who like were talking shit about the comic before it came out. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and in a lot of ways, uh, Pebbles is my my pop culture. You know, my my love of pop culture and, and music like that comes through Pebbles. And what about Bam Bam? What did you do with him? I think Bam Bam's just kind of like some guy who's. Um, He's 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 ultimately good, but he's but he doesn't think too much about anything. He's just happy to be there. To me, he's like a representation of like almost everybody I went to high school with. Uh, just sort of good people, but not really very thoughtful, and just kind of like happy to 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 be so be able to go party on a Friday night. Bam Bam's kind of a fun. Um kind of a, a fun character of the Flintstones too because he has a superpower, which is kind of unusual in the Flintstones world. Yeah, like he has, he he's super, super strong. Strength. And yeah, he's 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 like a like a hyper jock, and uh, he's a good person. I mean, this is kind of my experience with people in high school. I mean, everyone has these sort of. I mean, I, I think there's this expectation that popular people are are jerks, and the jocks are bullies. But that really wasn't my experience in, in high school. I mean, I, I you know, the popular kids were usually pretty nice, and the the jocks weren't bullies. They were just guys who who liked sports, and they're all more or less you know good decent people. They just didn't think too much about the world around them. They, they especially if, if life had handed them, you know, uh, a, a good role, they didn't think too deeply about it. They were just happy to to accept it. Where did you grow up? Uh, Eugene, Eugene, Oregon. And you're still in Portland, right? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So I didn't make it too far in life. <laughs> no, I, uh, if you're, if you, I, I just visited Oregon last summer, and if you're in Oregon, maybe you don't have to go too far. It's it's quite lovely out there. Yeah, to me, you know, growing up in Eugene, Portland was always the big city. Uh, oh, you, that's where you went to make it. You got, you know, if you went to Portland, you were a success. And you know, so yeah, I, I achieved my one sort of ambition in life really early, and then I've just been been screwing around for the last thirty years. Do you see any of Bedrock in Portland? Because Portland, we all know, is like a city with some character and like. Um a personality. Yeah, I think that the the thing that Portland has most in common with Bedrock is that people don't know any better. Um, nobody's telling you what you can't do, so it, it's like, well, of course I'll have a uh, a food cart devoted to gourmet grilled cheese sandwiches. No one's going to tell me that's a bad idea. That's a great or, idea. <laughs> yeah, it, you know, and, and yeah, and sometimes these that's how how genius is born. I think that's why my Portland gets this reputation of being such a creative city. Because uh, every now and then one of these crazy experiments works, and it's not being done anywhere else. Just because nobody thought, nobody thinks to stand in the way of of, of crazy ideas. We're very uh, accepting of our eccentrics here. This week's episode of the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show is also brought to you by Squarespace. If you've got a business, a podcast, a video series, a portfolio, or basically anything else, you should probably have a website, and the easiest way to make a professional, beautiful website is with Squarespace. There is never anything to install or patch or upgrade, so uh, instead of worrying about all that, 
you can focus on whatever the thing is you actually want to be doing. And with Squarespace, you can get your own domain name just like you've always dreamed. And Squarespace's unique domain experience is transparent and easy to use. On the off chance, you're going to get confused by something. I don't think it's going to happen. But if it does happen, Squarespace has award-winning 24-7 service. So there's really no reason not to give it a chance. Squarespace is used by a wide range of people and businesses. I'm talking musicians, designers, restaurants. Uh, podcasters, comic book writers, PowerPoint champions. Uh, There's basically almost nobody in the world uh, who couldn't benefit from using their all-in-one platform. Why not give it a shot? Start your free trial today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code Jeff Rubin to get 10% off your first purchase. That is squarespace.com. Offer code Jeff Rubin. And here's the end of the episode. The other character is kind of a recurring character. Basically the only other character who's a recurring non-Flintstone, non-Rubble character uh, who you revived for the series is Mr. Slate, who is a pretty miserable, uh, rich old man here. Is is that how you saw him in the original show, or is that you just uh, something you wanted to comment on and saw him as a potential uh, way to do that? Yeah, it's sort of my own creation. I think he was kind of a jerk in the... Uh, um in the cartoon, but it was more just kind of like he was just like the tip, prototypical boss uh, in, in that one. Whereas this one, he's more kind of like a, a representation of this sort of prosperity doctrine, which I think is ruining America. Although um, I will say that Slate undergoes sort of a personal journey in this in, in the comic book, and he doesn't end up the same as he begins. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that the Flintstones... Uh, that your book is it's it's kind of a fun to read a comic that is every every issue is its own story like an episode of TV, um, but there are sort of arcs that go over everything everything else too right? Yeah, yeah, and that's kind of the way I wrote it because I, I I wanted to to feel like a twelve issue story. I didn't want them each one to be completely you know decentralized like, uh, but at the same time I wanted to have every issue be about one thing, or to feel like it's like going to close story just so if i do get canceled i i got a chance to at least finish i'm not gonna be they're not gonna stop me mid-sentence on something uh but yeah there is an overarching story arc uh that will be resolved at the end of the 12 issues you've also got this character who's a he's the scientist of the town he's a carl sagan kind of stand-in and his name is carl sargon and i kind of knew sargon was a rock but i wasn't sure so i googled it and i confirmed that yes Sargon is indeed a rock. And I, I guess my question is, did you have to do a lot of geological research and make a big notepad file bef- to come up with all these rock puns? Yeah, I have like a list of like every kind of rock there is in the world. And I consult it sometimes when I need puns. Uh, or, but, you know, I don't try to limit myself to the rocks. I also like things that are just like, like Paleolithic or... Um, or um, old in nature, you know, I, like things that like are basically prehistoric. Um, you know, for example, they the children of Bedrock play with Neanderthals, or there's a uh, there's a restaurant called uh, Wamath Bamath. Thank you, Bamath. <laughs> you know, which is also kind of inspired by sort of the cutesy artisanal culture of Portland, where we have artisanal things with like the like we have a. Um, a food cart uh, that specializes in eggs, and it's called Fried Egg. I'm in love. Yeah, that's good. It's very it's it's very Simpsonsy, which I guess makes sense. The Simpsons is almost uh, certainly inspired by the Flintstones, right? And and it's inspired by Portland. I mean, uh, right, half right, the characters course. are named after right, streets right, right. in Portland, and this is where Matt Groening grew up. Did you um, 
have any trouble updating the technology of today into Stone Age versions of it. So it's interesting, like, on the show, they have phones and cameras, which are, you know, sort of newish, newer than they are today in the 50s and the 60s. Um, but in your comic, they're texting on clamshells, and they have, you know, headphones on with iPods and stuff like that. Did you have to work to figure out, like, how computer and how the Internet technology had could be updated this way? Yeah, I mean, uh, the problem is that a lot of our modern technology is sort of uh, uh, solid state. You know, there's not like a lot of machines and gears and stuff working in it. You you can't really have a hamster running inside a wheel to explain how the iPhone works. Uh, But, you know, I just when I couldn't figure it out, I just I just left it up to the uh, suspension of disbelief. It's like, oh, he's got he's got an uh, an iRock instead of an iPod or, you know, wearing clamshells headphones. Uh, Just you just have to imagine that it works uh the um yeah so i didn't i didn't worry too much about trying to come up with the with the, the equivalent if i couldn't do it the, the other thing is about the flintstones it's weird is that they have um sort of a sci-fi element with this the great gazoo who is barely on the show but i feel like his influence in the years since the show has been disproportionate like um you know, he's in, he's in the movies and the games and that sort of thing. The Great Gazoo, for those who don't remember, is a, a small green alien that only Fred and Barney can see, perhaps. And he has magical yeah. powers, and it's sort of sort of unlike the other Flintstone stuff, right? Yeah, I think I think for most people that kind of marks the point where uh, the the fin to sickle of the Flintstones, where it had jumped the shark, as it were, because they had this they introduced this character who's basically like a genie, although he's an alien on the show. Uh, kind of directly stolen from another earlier uh, TV show, My Favorite Martian. And uh, and yeah, the Gazoo character in the television show is really kind of bad. But for me, I, I wanted to like have him be sort of like the, almost like the uh, Alexis de Tocqueville of Bedrock. He's the outsider who understands democracy better than the Americans do. Uh, so he... Um, He's, it's his commentary on Bedrock uh, that ultimately kind of d- determines the, the fate of the world because uh, he's here on behalf of uh, the planet Las Vega, which is trying to establish betting odds on whether or not the Earth will make it or wh- whether we'll implode under our own, our, our own destructive power. And so he's the one kind of like the initial bookmaker setting the odds and in a lot of ways determining the fate of the world. I never realized The Great Kazoo was based on a character from My Favorite Martian, but that makes sense because a lot of the Flintstones and a lot of those Hanna-Barbera cartoon characters are based on sort of famous characters slash personalities of the time. And the whole thing is sort of a honeymooners riff. When you're writing the comic... Uh, when you're writing Fred and Barney, do you hear the, the Alan Reed and the Mel Blanc voice in your head? No, not anymore. I think maybe a little at first, but I, I, I think I've, I've gone far enough afield from that where um, it, to me, I don't even really think in the vocabulary of the original ca- cartoon when I'm, when I'm writing it. You mentioned a few times that you're going to get to 12 episodes or 12 issues and you're going to see out this 12 issue arc. But then, correct me if I'm wrong, that's going to be it for the Flintstones. Is that right? That's it. It's as far as I know. Um, I mean, I, I suppose DC could always continue with somebody else, but they haven't told me they have any plans to do so. And I'm moving on to, to do Snagglepuss after this. So um, as far as I know, it, it ends at 12. There, there's talk. It's pretty abstract at this point. I don't know if it will ever happen, but maybe coming back to the Flintstones at some point and maybe doing a, a Pebbles and Bam Bam spinoff. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, I was going to say, it just seems like you got a good thing going here. 
Yeah, I, I do. But I, you know, um, uh, David Mamet once described writing for writing a play as running a marathon and writing for TV as, uh, running until you die. And I think running, writing 12 issues of the Flintstones is like running a marathon. I'm happy to do that. And it's, you know, it was rewarding and it took a lot out of me, but I'm glad I did it. But I don't want it to be one of these situations where I'm just running until I die, where I'm I'm just writing issues of the Flintstones until they're no longer good. and They have to tell me to leave it alone. I'd rather leave it at a point where I feel like I still have something to say. How did you come to Snagglepuss? Was that your idea or theirs? Uh, That was my idea. Snagglepuss is not as uh, well-remembered, one of the bigger Hanna-Barbera characters probably, but he's not like Fred Flintstone, you know? Yeah, it was almost kind of like a practical joke uh, because I was – Again, I was posting on Facebook just sort of like things that like 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 dialogue between Snagglepuss and Huckleberry Hound as if they were sort of gay Southern Gothic playwrights, you know, like Tennessee Williams and William Faulkner, like talking to each other. And um, and uh, my editor thought it was funny and uh, asked me if I'd be interested in actually doing as a comic. And I thought, sure, even though I thought there's no way they'd ever greenlight this. So I wrote a pitch and I sent it into her and she's like, oh my God, I can't believe it's gone this far, but Dan really likes the idea. He wants to know if you can incorporate more Hanna-Barbera cartoon characters. So there's writing uh, like roles for Squidly Diddly and Peter Potamus. Wow, and, I'm pretty good at Hanna-Barbera, but I don't know those two. Yeah, okay. me too. I mean, he, he actually, Dan had requests like for, you know, incorporating certain characters into it uh so so yeah it's not just gonna be snagglepuss now it's gonna have huckleberry hound it's gonna have peter potamus squidly diddly uh augie toggy shows up augie was augie huckleberry Hound or no augie doggy was like the orange dog with the green sweater right augie doggy yeah he had like a like exactly he had a sweater and he was the son of uh daddy doggy right he was okay okay so snagglepuss now i I think I just assumed everyone listening would know what the deal with the Flintstones is, and I think that's a fair assumption. But Snagglepuss, possibly people don't. What was the deal with Snagglepuss in the original cartoons? Uh, well, he was a pink lion, who a lot of people think. Uh, I mean, looking back on it now, it's like, oh, clearly he was he was a gay cartoon character because he's he's very effete and he you know talks in these sort of theater aphorisms, and he uh, you know and and so to me it was it was not. Um, but but he's a cartoon character in the 1950s, so to me that was really striking. Like what you know what it would be like to be in the theater and arts and, and closeted in the 1950s around the time of the Stonewall riots in in New York, and he would have been part of that whole scene on Broadway. And and so I feel like there's this whole sort of like um, this this whole story there that behind the scenes of Snagglepuss that that. that could be really sort of riveting and, and culturally relevant. Do you have other Hanna Barbera character, Hanna Barbera characters that you'd like to get to one day? No, I think that'll probably be it for me. I would love to do a, a Frankenberry comic, <laughs> uh, Count Chocula and Booberry, uh, uh, if they let me, if you know, if I could get the licensing. The but board? yeah, no, I wish I could work in Captain Crunch, but apparently he's a different serial company. Uh, well, what about? Uh, the the one I would ask you about is what about the Jetsons? Can the the Flintstones and the Jetsons just sort of seem like the yin and the yang in a way, and they're like connected? Is doing the Flintstones mean that you, in a way you've sort of done the Jetsons too? Um, no, they're they're completely different in a lot of ways. Uh, the Flintstones are about you know people to whom every, every you know the civilization is new and they're really excited about it, and uh, they're 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 happy they're they're excited about all the changes. 
And the Jetsons, in a lot of ways, is kind of the opposite. It's like, er, you know, it's in the future, and everyone's, like, worried about the changes. Everyone, you know, George Jetson's, like, you know, kind of, like, upset by the fact that things are changing so fast, and he wants things to stay the same. But, um, damn, uh, DC's actually doing a a Jetsons reboot um, uh, with Amanda Connor. So that one's covered. Yeah. But maybe, maybe Flintstones meet the Jetsons. That could happen. I mean, uh, I'm doing a I, I'm doing a Flintstones annual uh, where Booster Gold. And I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he's sure. a, a time time traveling superhero. He's like a real deal superhero from like the mainstream DC Comics continuity. Yeah, like yeah, and, Batman or whoever. Yeah, exactly. And he shows up. Uh, he uh, accidentally in Bedrock. He has like a little little um, accident in his, his time sphere and ends up in Bedrock. So we've talked about like you having interesting takes on these characters, like Prez and uh, the Flintstones and Frankenberry. Um, but what do you, do you have any appetite for creating original characters too? Yeah, I've actually written a couple books um, that haven't seen the light of day uh, that I, w- I would like to. I've written a, a, a book that I would like to convert, adapt to a graphic novel about the first uh, manned mission to Mars. And basically the premise is that uh, there's it's it's when the Earth's fossil fuel economy is dying out, and the world's running out of energy, and there's this massive oil discovery on Mars. So there's this madcap race on behalf of, of all the world's corporations to to land a human being on Mars so they can claim the oil for their corporation. And the one that wins wins because they find this terminally ill man who is willing to just go to Mars and die there. They don't have to worry about bringing him back. Or even like supporting him while he's there, so you can just put cobble together a spaceship, fly him to Mars, and he's willing to just declare the oil for them and die on the on the red planet. And it's all told through his sort of uh, his his sort of diary diary entries on the way to Mars. And then once he gets there, and it's really personal and introspective, and and I, I think it's mostly about sort of re- loss and regret. And I would love to adapt this to a, a graphic novel at some point. So why would you like to adapt it? What, what do you think you would uh, – why, why adapt – why – sorry, I'm just trying to think I had a phrase. Why are you interested in adapting something you already have as a novel to a graphic novel? What do you hope to gain from that uh, transition? Well, I think it's very visual uh, and because it does take place in the near future on earth and, and Mars and, uh, aboard a spaceship and his two companions aboard the spaceship are these, um, are these Mars rovers that have artificial intelligence or are intelligent. I think it would work really well as a graphic novel. Uh, and, and I, I, I think also it's right now it's kind of a novella form, so it's not really long enough to publish as a novel, but it's just perfect for, for scripting as a graphic novel. Also, presumably you've got some new graphic novel readers who are fans of yours. Yeah. And I've got yeah, I've got contacts in the industry now. Right, so, right, right. Um, but so you've got original content kind of cooking too. But it sounds like if you're writing Frankenberry and Snagglepuss content on your Facebook just for fun, that there's some piece of the challenge of rebooting things and like taking existing characters and um, modifying them and finding a new way to make them interesting. It sounds like that challenge is inherently appealing to you. Is that right? Yeah, I think I like that. I think, uh, I, I mean, my first book was about the Bible, so I don't know why, but I'm drawn to things that I think already have a certain amount of cultural equity. I guess what I, a lot of what I do is sort of cultural commentary. 
And so it, it, by nature, I'm, I'm, I'm working with things that already exist in people's consciousness as a, as a cultural icon. Well, you're very good at it, so keep at it. The book is The Flintstones. It's available anywhere comic books are. It's online, um, all those things. And how can people find you online, Mark? Uh, probably the best way is just to follow me on Twitter. I'm at Manrus, M-A-N-R-U-S-S. Uh, I tweet regularly. Um, and, yeah, that's probably the best way to, to keep track of my comings and goings. I've been reading The Flintstones digitally, but is there a trade paperback version out or coming out soon? There is. Uh, it comes out on March 22nd. Uh, I already got my creator copies. It looks fantastic. Uh, so, yeah, March 22nd, the first six issues of The Flintstones. That'll be a great way to catch up on it if you haven't yet. And I really recommend you do. Listeners, great, not thanks. you. You already know it. So, yeah. <laughs> that's for the listeners. You're good. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for uh, making time coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks. That's it for this week's episode of the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show. I will be back in two weeks, and I am for once uh, far enough ahead that I can actually tell you what the episode will be about. Uh, In two weeks, you'll be hearing me talk to Grant Kirkhope. Um, Grant is a video game music composer and has written uh, written music for games such as Banjo-Kazooie and the upcoming ukulele, and a little underappreciated Nintendo 64 game called GoldenEye. This guy wrote the music for GoldenEye, and we're going to talk to him about that in two weeks on this podcast. I will see you there. Uh, Of course, uh, if you want to hang out between now and then, you can always find me on Twitter, where I'm at Jeff Rubin Show, on Tumblr, Instagram, Facebook, uh, the whole thing, jeffrubinjeffrubin.com. I got an email address. Would love to hear from you. But if I don't hear from you, that's okay. I'll be back in two weeks with Grant, and I'll see you there. Until then, bye. That was a HeadGum Podcast.